tale of three brothers there were once three brothers who were traveling along a lonely winding road at twilight in time the brothers reached a river too deep to wade through and too dangerous to swim across however these brothers were learned in the magical arts and so they simply waved their wands and made a bridge appear across the treacherous water they were halfway across it when they found their path blocked by a hooded figure and death spoke to them he was angry that he had been cheated out of three new victims for travelers usually drowned in the river but death was cunning he pretended to congratulate the three brothers upon their magic and said that each had earned a prize for having been clever enough to evade him so the oldest brother who was a combative man asked for a wand more powerful than any in existence a wand that must always win duels for its owner a wand worthy of a wizard who had conquered death so death crossed to an elder tree on the banks of the river fashioned a wand from a branch that hung there and gave it to the oldest brother then the second brother who was an arrogant man decided that he wanted to humiliate death still further and asked for the power to recall others from death so death picked up a stone from the river bank and gave it to the second brother and told him that the stone would have the power to bring back the dead and then death asked the third and youngest brother what he would like the youngest brother did not trust death so he asked for something that would enable him to go forth from that place without being followed by death and death most unwillingly handed over his own cloak of invisibility then death stood aside and allowed the three brothers to continue on their way and they did so talking with wonder of the adventure they had had and admiring death's gifts in due course the brothers separated each for his own destination the first brother traveled on for a week or more and reaching a distant village he sought out a fellow wizard with whom he had a quarrel naturally with the elder wand as his weapon he could not fail to win the duel that followed leaving his enemy dead upon the floor the oldest brother proceeded to an inn where he boasted loudly of the powerful wand he had snatched from death himself and of how it made him invincible that very night another wizard crept upon the oldest brother as he lay wine sodden upon his bed the thief took the wand and for good measure slit the oldest brother's throat and so death took the first brother for his own meanwhile the second brother journeyed to his own home where he lived alone here he took out the stone that had the power to recall the dead and turned it thrice in his hand to his amazement and his delight the figure of the girl he had once hoped to marry before her untimely death appeared at once before him yet 
She was silent and cold, separated from him as though by a veil. Though she had returned to the mortal world, she did not truly belong there and suffered. Finally, the second brother, driven mad with hopeless longing, killed himself so as to truly join her. And so, death took the second brother for his own. But though death searched for the third brother for many years, he was never able to find him. It was only when he had attained a great age that the youngest brother finally took off the cloak of invisibility and gave it to his son. And then he greeted death as an old friend and went with him gladly and equals they departed this life. The moral of the tale of the three brothers could not be any clearer. The human efforts to evade or overcome death are always doomed to disappoint. The third brother in the story, the humblest and also the wisest, is the only one who understands that having narrowly escaped death once, the best he can hope for is to postpone their next meeting for as long as possible. The End and the hopping pot. There was once a kindly old wizard who used his magic generously and wisely for the benefit of his neighbors. Rather than reveal the true source of his power, he pretended that his potions, charms and antidotes sprang ready-made from the little cauldron he called his lucky cooking pot. From miles around, people came to him with their troubles and the wizard was pleased to give his pot a stir and put things right. This well-beloved wizard lived to a goodly age, then died, leaving all his chattels to his only son. This son was of a very different disposition to his gentle father. Those who could not work magic were to the son's mind worthless and he had often quarrelled with his father's habit of dispensing magical aid to their neighbours. Upon the father's death, the son found hidden inside the old cooking pot a small package bearing his name. He opened it, hoping for gold, but found instead a soft, thick slipper, much too small to wear and with no pair. A fragment of parchment within the slipper bore the words, In the fond hope, my son, that you will never need it. The son cursed his father's age-softened mind, then threw the slipper back into the cauldron, resolving to use it henceforth as a rubbish pail. That very night, a peasant woman knocked on the front door. My granddaughter is afflicted by a crop of warts, sir she told him. Your father used to mix a special poultice in that old cooking pot. Begone! cried the son. What care I for your brat's words? And he slammed the door in the old woman's face. At once, there came a loud clanging and banging from his kitchen. The wizard lit his wand and opened the door and there, to his amazement, he saw his father's old cooking pot. It had sprouted a single foot of brass and was hopping on the spot in the middle of the floor 
making a fearful noise upon the flagstones. The wizard approached it in wonder, but fell back hurriedly when he saw that the whole of the pot's surface was covered in warts. Disgusting object, he cried, and he tried firstly to vanish the pot, then to clean it by magic, and finally to force it out of the house. None of his spells worked, however, and he was unable to prevent the pot hopping after him out of the kitchen and then following him up to bed, clanging and banging loudly on every wooden stair. The wizard could not sleep all night for the banging of the warty old pot by his bedside. And next morning, the pot insisted upon hopping after him to the breakfast table. Clang, clang, clang went the brass-footed pot and the wizard had not even started his porridge when there came another knock on the door. An old man stood on the doorstep. "'Tis my old donkey, sir," he explained. "'Lost she is, or stolen, and without her I cannot take my wares to market, and my family will go hungry tonight." "'Am I hungry now?' roared the wizard. And he slammed the door upon the old man. Clang, clang, clang went the cooking pot's single brass foot upon the floor. But now its clamor was mixed with the brace of a donkey and human groans of hunger echoing from the depths of the pot. Be still, be silent, shrieked the wizard. But not all his magic powers could quieten the vati pot which hopped at his heels all day, braying and groaning and clanging, no matter where he went or what he did. That evening, there came a third knock upon the door, and there on the threshold stood a young woman sobbing as though her heart would break. My baby is grievously ill, she said. Won't you please help us? Your father bade me come if troubled. But the wizard slammed the door on her. And now, the tormenting pot filled to the brim with salt water and slobbed tears all over the floor as it hopped and brayed and groaned and sprouted more warts. Though no more villagers came to seek help at the wizard's cottage for the rest of the week, the pot kept him informed of their many ills. Within a few days, it was not only braying and groaning and slopping and hopping and sprouting warts, it was also choking and retching, crying like a baby, whining like a dog, and spewing out bad cheese and sour milk and a plague of hungry slugs. The wizard could not sleep or eat with the pot beside him, but the pot refused to leave, and he could not silence it or force it to be still. At last, the wizard could bear it no more. Bring me all your problems, all your troubles and your woes, he screamed fleeing into the night with the pot hopping behind him along the road into the village. Come, let me cure you, mend you and comfort you. I have my father's cooking pot and I shall make you well. And with the foul pot still bounding along behind him, he ran up the street, casting spells in every direction. Inside one house, the little girl's warts vanished as she slept. The lost donkey was summoned from a distant briar patch and set down softly in its stable. The sick baby was doused in detony and woke, well and rosy. At every house of sickness and sorrow, the wizard did his best and gradually the cooking pot beside him 
stopped groaning and retching and became quite shiny and clean. Well, what? asked the trembling wizard as the sun began to rise. The pot burped out the single slipper he had thrown into it and permitted him to fit it on the brass foot. Together, they set off back to the wizard's house. The pot's footstep muffled at last. But from that day forward, the wizard helped the villagers like his father before him, lest the pot cast off its slipper and begin to hop once more. The End High on a hill in an enchanted garden, enclosed by tall walls and protected by strong magic, flowed the fountain of fair fortune. Once a year, between the hours of sunrise and sunset on the longest day, a single unfortunate was given the chance to fight their way to the fountain, bathe in its waters and receive fair fortune forevermore. On the appointed day, hundreds of people travelled from all over the kingdom to reach the garden walls before dawn. Male and female, rich and poor, young and old, of all magical means and without, they gathered in the darkness, each hoping that they would be the one to gain entrance to the garden. Three witches, each with her burden of woe, met on the outskirts of the crowd and told one another their sorrows as they waited for sunrise. The first, by name Arsha, was sick of a malady no healer could cure. She hoped that the fountain would banish her symptoms and grant her a long and happy life. The second, by name Altheda, had been robbed of her home, her gold, and her won by an evil sorcerer. She hoped that the fountain might relieve her of powerlessness and poverty. The third, by name Amata, had been deserted by a man whom she loved dearly and she thought her heart would never mend. She hoped that the fountain would relieve her of her grief and longing. Pitying each other, the three women agreed that, should the chance befall them, they would unite and try to reach the fountain together. The sky was rent with the first ray of sun and a chink in the wall opened. The crowd surged forward, each of them shrieking their claim for the fountain's vanishing. Creepers from the garden beyond snaked through the pressing mass and twisted themselves around the first witch, Asha. She grasped the wrist of the second witch, Altheda, who seized tight upon the robes of the third witch, Amata. And Amata became caught upon the armor of a dismal-looking knight who was seated on a bone-thin horse. The creepers tugged the three witches through the chink in the wall, and the knight was dragged off his steed after them. The furious screams of the disappointed throng rose upon the morning air, then fell silent as the garden walls sealed once more. Arsha and Altheda were very angry with Amata, who had accidentally brought along the night. Only one can bathe in the fountain. It will be hard to decide which of us it will be without adding another. 
Now, Sir Luckless, as the knight was known in the land outside the walls, observed that these were witches and having no magic nor any great skill at jousting or dwelling with swords nor anything that distinguished the non-magical man was sure that he had no hope of beating the three women to the fountain. He therefore declared his intention of withdrawing outside the walls again. At this, Amata became angry too. Faint heart, she shivered him. Draw your sword, knight, and help us reach our goal. And so, the three witches and the forlorn knight ventured forth into the enchanted garden where rare herbs, fruit, and flowers grew in abundance on either side of the sunlit paths. They met no obstacle until they reached the foot of the hill on which the fountain stood. There, however, wrapped around the base of the hill, was a monstrous white worm, bloated and blind. At their approach, it turned a full face upon them and uttered the following words. Pay me the proof of your pain. Sir Luckless drew his sword and attempted to kill the beast, but his blade snapped. Then, Altheda cast rocks at the worm while Asha and Amata essayed every spell that might subdue or entrance it. But the power of their wands was no more effective than their friend's stone or the knight's steel. The worm would not let them pass. The sun rose higher and higher in the sky and Asha, despairing, began to weep. Then the great worm placed its face upon hers and drank the tears from her cheeks. Its thirst assuaged, the worm slithered aside and vanished into a hole in the ground. Rejoicing at the worm's disappearance, the three witches and the knight began to climb the hill, sure that they would reach the fountain before noon. Halfway up the steep slope, however, they came across words cut into the ground before them. Pay me the fruit of your labors. Sir Luckless took out his only coin and placed it upon the grassy hillside, but it rolled away and was lost. The three witches and the knight continued to climb, but though they walked for hours more, they advanced not a step. The summit came no nearer, and still the inscription lay in the earth before them. All were discouraged as the sun rose over their heads and began to sink towards the far horizon. But Altada walked faster and harder than any of them, and exhorted the others to follow her example, though she moved no further up the enchanted hill. Courage, friends, and do not yield, she cried, wiping the sweat from her brow. As the drops fell glittering on the earth, the inscription blocking their path vanished, and they found that they were able to move upwards one more. Delighted by the removal of this second obstacle, they hurried towards the summit as fast as they could until at last they glimpsed the fountain glittering like crystal in a bower of flowers and trees. Before they could reach it, however, they came to a stream that ran round the hilltop barring their way. In the depths of the clear water lay a smooth stone bearing the words, Pay me the treasure of your past. Salakles attempting to float across the stream on his shield, but it sank. The three witches pulled him from the water, 
then tried to leap the brook themselves, but it would not let them cross. And all the while, the sun was sinking lower in the sky. So they fell to pondering the meaning of the stone's message, and Amata was the first to understand. Taking her wand, she drew from her mind all the memories of happy times she had spent with her vanished lover and dropped them into the rushing waters. The stream swept them away and stepping stones appeared and the three witches and the knight were able to pass at last onto the summit of the hill. The fountain shimmered before them, set amidst herbs and flowers, rarer and more beautiful than any they had yet seen. The sky burned ruby and it was time to decide which of them would bathe. Before they could make that decision, however, Freya Lasha fell to the ground. Exhausted by her struggle to the summit, she was close to death. Her three friends would have carried her to the fountain, but Asha was in mortal agony and begged them not to touch her. Then Althada hastened to pick all those herbs she thought most powerful and mixed them in Sir Luckless' gourd of water and poured the potion into Asha's mouth. At once, Asha was able to stand. What was more, all symptoms of her dread malady had vanished. I'm cured, she cried. I have no need of the fountain. Let Althada bathe. But Althada was busy collecting more herbs in her apron. If I can cure this disease, I shall earn gold aplenty. Let Amata bathe. Sir Luckless bowed and gestured Amata towards the fountain. But she shook her head. The stream had washed away all regret for her lover and she saw now that he had been cruel and faithless and that it was happiness enough to be rid of him. Good sir, you must bathe as a reward for all your chivalry, she told Sir Luckless. So the night clanged forth in the last rays of the setting sun and bid in the fountain of fair fortune, astonished that he was the chosen one of hundreds and giddy with his incredible luck. As the sun fell below the horizon, Sir Luckless emerged from the waters with the glory of his triumph upon him and flung himself in his rusted armor at the feet of Amata, who was the kindest and most beautiful woman he had ever beheld. Flushed with success, he begged for her hand and her heart, and Amata, no less delighted, realized that she had found a man worthy of them. The three witches and the knight set off down the hill together, arm in arm, and all four led long and happy lives, and none of them ever knew or suspected that the fountain's waters carried no enchantment at all. The story teaches us the importance of teamwork. The End The Warlock's Hairy Heart There was once a handsome, rich and talented young warlock who observed that his friends grew foolish when they fell in love, gambling and preening, losing their appetites and their dignity. The young warlock resolved never to fall prey to such weakness and employed dark arts to ensure his immunity. Unaware of his secret, the warlock's family laughed to see him so aloof and cold. 
all will change they prophesized when a maid catches his fancy but the young warlock's fancy remained untouched though many a maiden were intrigued by his haughty mien and employed her most subtle art to please him none succeeded in touching his heart the warlock gloried in his indifference and the sagacity that had produced it the first freshness of youth waned and the warlock's peers began to wed and then to bring forth children their hearts must be husks he sneered inwardly as he observed the antics of the young parents around him shriveled by the demand of these mewling offspring and once again he congratulated himself upon the wisdom of his early choice in due course the warlock's aged parents died their son did not mourn them on the contrary he considered himself blessed by their demise now he reigned alone in the castle having transferred his greatest treasure to the deepest dungeon he gave himself over to a life of ease and plenty his comfort the only aim of his many servants the warlock was sure that he must be an object of immense envy to all who beheld his splendid and untroubled solitude fears were his anger and chagrin therefore when he overheard two of his lackeys discussing their master one day the first servant expressed pity for the warlock who with all his wealth and power was yet beloved by nobody but his companion jeered asking why a man with so much gold and palatial castle to his name had been unable to attract a wife their words dealt dreadful blows to the listening warlock's pride he resolved at once to take a wife and that she would be a wife superior to all others she would possess astounding beauty exciting envy and desire in every man who beheld her she would spring from magical lineage so that their offspring would inherit outstanding magical gifts and she would have wealth at least equal to his own so that his comfortable existence would be assured in spite of additions to his household it might have taken the warlock 50 years to find such a woman yet it so happened that the very day after he decided to seek her a maiden answering his every wish arrived in the neighborhood to visit her kinsfolk she was a witch of prodigious skill and possessed of much gold her beauty was such that it tugged at the heart of every man who set eyes on her of every man that is except one the warlock's heart felt nothing at all nevertheless she was the prize he sought so he began to pay her court all who noticed the warlock's change in manners were amazed and told the maiden that she had succeeded where a hundred had failed the young woman herself was both fascinated and repelled by the warlock's attentions she sensed the coldness that lay behind the warmth of his flattery and had never met a man so strange and remote her kinsfolk however deemed theirs a most suitable match and eager to promote it accepted the warlock's invitation to a great feast in the maiden's honor the table was laid with silver and gold bearing the finest wines and most sumptuous foods minstrels summoned strummed on silk stringed lutes and sang of a love their master had never felt the maiden sat upon a throne beside the warlock 
who speak low employing words of tenderness he had stolen from the poets without any idea of their true meaning the maiden listened puzzled and finally replied you speak well warlock and i would be delighted by your attentions if only i thought you had a heart the warlock smiled and told her that she need not fear on that score bidding her follow he led her from the feast and down to the locked dungeon where he kept his greatest treasure here in an enchanted crystal casket was a warlock's beating heart long since disconnected from eyes ears and fingers it had never fallen prey to beauty or to a musical voice to the feel of silken skin the maiden was terrified by the sight for it for the heart was shrunken and covered in long black hair oh what have you done she lamented put it back where it belongs i beseech you seeing that this was necessary to please her the warlock drew his wand unlocked the crystal casket sliced open his own breast and replaced the hairy heart in the empty cavity it had once occupied now you are healed and you know true love cried the maiden and she embraced him the touch of her soft white arms the sound of her breath in his air the scent of her heavy golden hair all pierced the newly awakened heart like spears but it had grown strange during its long exile blind and savage in the darkness to which it had been condemned and its appetites had grown powerful and perverse the guests at the feast had noticed the absence of their host and maiden at first untroubled they grew anxious as the hours passed and finally began to search the castle they found the dungeon at last and a most dreadful sight awaited them there the maiden lay dead upon the floor her breast cut open and beside her crouched the mad warlock holding in one bloody hand a great smooth shining scarlet heart which he licked and stroked wanting to exchange it for his own in his other hand he held his wand trying to coax from his own chest the shriveled hairy heart but the hairy heart was stronger than he was and refused to relinquish its hold upon his senses and to return to the coffin in which it had been locked for so long before the horror struck eyes of his guests the warlock cast aside his wand and seized a silver dagger going never to be mastered by his own heart he hacked it from his chest for one moment the warlock knelt triumphant with a heart clutch in each hand then he fell across the maiden's body and died the story speaks to the dark depths in all of us it addresses one of the greatest and least acknowledged temptations of magic the quest for invulnerability of course such a quest is nothing more or less than a foolish fantasy as they say tamper with the deepest mysteries the source of life the essence of self only if prepared for consequences of the most extreme and dangerous kind the end babbity rabbity and her cackling stump 
A long time ago, in a far-off land, there lived a foolish king who decided that he alone should have the power of magic. He therefore commanded the head of his army to form a brigade of witch hunters and issued them with a pack of ferocious black hounds. At the same time, the king caused proclamations to be read in every village and town across the land. Wanted by the king, an instructor in magic. No true witch or wizard dared volunteer for the post, for they were all in hiding from the brigade of witch hunters. However, a cunning charlatan with no magical power saw a chance of enriching himself and arrived at the palace claiming to be a wizard of enormous skill. The charlatan performed a few simple tricks which convinced the foolish king of his magical powers and was immediately appointed Grand Sorcerer-in-Chief, the king's private magic master. The charlatan bade the king give him a large sack of gold so that he might purchase wands and other magical necessities. He also requested several large rubies to be used in the cast of curative charms and a silver chalice or two for the storing and maturing of potions. All these things the foolish king supplied. The charlatan stored the treasure safely in his own house and returned to the palace grounds. He did not know that he was being watched by an old woman who lived in a hovel at the edge of the grounds. Her name was Babati and she was a washerwoman who kept the palace linens soft, fragrant and white. Peeping from behind her drying sheets, Babati saw the charlatan snap two twigs from one of the king's trees and disappear into the palace. The charlatan gave one of the twigs to the king and assured him that it was a wand of tremendous power. It will only work, however, said the charlatan, when you are worthy of it. Every morning, the charlatan and the foolish king walked out into the palace grounds where they were waving their wands and shouted nonsense at the sky. The charlatan was careful to perform more tricks so that the king remained convinced of his grand sorcerer's skill and of the power of the wands that had cost so much gold. One morning, as the charlatan and the foolish king were twirling their wigs and hopping in circles and chanting meaningless rhythms, a loud cackling reached the king's ears. Babati, the washerwoman, was watching the king and the charlatan from the window of her tiny cottage and was laughing so hard she soon sank out of sight too weak to stand. I must look most undignified to make the old washerwoman laugh so, said the king. He seized his hopping and twig twirling and frowned. I grow weary of practice. When shall I be ready to perform real spells in front of my subject sorcerer? The charlatan tried to soothe his pupil, assuring him that he would soon be capable of astonishing feats of magic. But Babati's cackling had stung the foolish king more than the charlatan knew. Tomorrow, said the king, we shall invite our court to watch their king perform magic. 
The charlatan saw that the time had come to take his treasure and flee. Alas, your majesty, it is impossible. I had forgotten to tell your majesty that I must set out on a long journey tomorrow. If you leave this palace without my permission, sorcerer, my brigade of witch hunters will hunt you down with their hounds. Tomorrow morning, you will assist me to perform magic for the benefit of my lords and ladies. And if anybody laughs at me, I shall have you beheaded. The king stormed back to the palace, leaving the charlatan alone and afraid. Not all his cunning could save him now, for he could not run away, nor could he help the king with magic that neither of them knew. Seeking a vent for his fear and his anger, the charlatan approached the window of Bavati, the washerwoman. Peering inside, he saw the little old lady sitting on her table, polishing a wand. In a corner behind her, the king's sheets were washing themselves in a wooden tub. The charlatan understood at once that Babati was a true witch and that she who had given him his awful problem could also solve it. Groan, roared the charlatan. Your cackling has cost me dear. If you fail to help me, I shall denounce you as a witch and it will be you who is torn apart by the king's hounds. Old Babati smiled at the charlatan and assured him that she would do everything in her power to help. The charlatan instructed her to conceal herself inside a bush while the king gave his magical display and to perform the king's spells for him without his knowledge. Babati agreed to the plan but asked one question. What, sir, if the king attempts a spell Babati cannot perform? The charlatan scoffed. Your magic is more than equal to that fool's imagination, he assured her. And he retired to the castle, well pleased with his cleverness. The following morning, all the lords and ladies of the kingdom assembled in the palace grounds. The king climbed onto a stage in front of them with the charlatan by his side. I shall firstly make this lady's hat disappear, cried the king, pointing his twig at a noblewoman. From inside a bush nearby, Babati pointed her wand at the hat and caused it to vanish. Great was the astonishment and admiration of the crowd and loud their applause for the jubilant king. Next, I shall make that horse fly, cried the king pointing his twig at his own steed. From inside the bush, Babati pointed her wand at the horse and it rose high into the air. The crowd was still more thrilled and amazed and they roared their appreciation for the magical king. And now, said the king, looking all round for an idea and the captain of his brigade of witch hunters ran forwards. Your majesty, said the captain, this very morning, Saber died of eating a poisonous toadstool. Bring him back to life, Your Majesty, with your wand. And the captain heaved onto the stage the lifeless body of the largest of the witch-hunting hounds. The foolish king brandished his twig and pointed it at the dead dog. But inside the bush, Babati smiled and did not trouble to lift her wand, for no magic can raise the dead. When the dog did not stir, the crowd began first to whisper and then to laugh. They suspected that the king's first two feats had been mere tricks after all. 
Why doesn't it work? The king screamed at the charlatan, who bethought himself of the only ruse left to him. There, your majesty, there! he shouted, pointing at the bush where Babati sat concealed. I see her plain. A wicked witch was blocking her magic with her own evil spells. Seize her, somebody, seize her! Babati fled from the bush, and the brigade of witch hunters set off in pursuit, unleashing their hounds, who bayed for Babati's blood. But as she reached the low hedge, the little witch vanished from sight, and when the king, the charlatan, and all the courtiers gained the other side, they found the pack of witch hunting hounds barking and scrambling around a bent and aged tree. She has turned herself into a tree, screamed the charlatan, and dreading lest Babati turn back into a woman and denounce him, he added, Cut her down, your majesty, that is the way to teach evil witches. An axe was brought at once, and the old tree was felled to loud cheers from the courtiers and the charlatan. However, as they were making ready to return to the palace, the sound of the loud cackling stopped them in their tracks. Fools! cried Babiti's voice from the stump they had left behind. No witch or wizard can be killed by cutting in half. Take the axe if you do not believe me and cut the crown saucer in two. The captain of the brigade of witch hunters was eager to make the experiment. But as he raised the axe, the charlatan fell to his knees, screaming for mercy and confessing all his wickedness. As he was dragged away to the dungeons, the tree stump cackled more loudly than ever. By cutting a witch in half, you have unleashed a dreadful curse upon your kingdom. It told the petrified king, Henceforth, every stroke of harm that you inflict upon my fellow witches and wizards will feel like an axe stroke in your own side until you wish you could die of it. At that, the king fell to his knees too and told the stump that he would issue a proclamation at once, protecting all the witches and wizards of the kingdom and allowing them to practice their magic in peace. Very good, said the stump, but you have not yet made amends to Babati. Anything! Anything at all, cried the foolish king, wringing his hands before the stump. You will erect a statue of Babati upon me in memory of your poor washerwoman and to remind you forever of your own foolishness, said the stump. The king agreed to it at once and promised to engage the foremost sculptor in the land and have the statue made of pure gold. Then the shamed king and all the noblemen and women returned to the palace, leaving the tree stump cackling behind them. When the grounds were deserted once more, there wriggled from a hole behind the roots of the tree stump a stout, whiskery old rabbit with a wand clamped between her teeth. Babati hopped out of the grounds and far away, and ever after a golden statue of the washerwoman stood upon the tree stump, and no witcher wizard was ever persecuted in the kingdom again. The End